HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by greatbrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, it's welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's September 3rd, 2013. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 and the Good Beer Seal. And what a summer we've had. We've been to different breweries. We've been to the Cooperstown Festival. Belgium comes to Cooperstown and Omegang. Um, and we're here with Josh Bernstein. He's got a new book coming out. There's so much going on in New York right now. Summer's just over, and uh, we're going to take a minute and reflect on the summer. So, Josh, welcome to the show, and, and what's your new book? You, you've got a second book, and I just finished reading your first book. I know. Well, you know, it takes a little bit of time to read, Jimmy, so, you know, I'll give you a couple of years on that one, and so I'm glad you got to it eventually. <laughs> but, yeah, my new book, Complete Beer Course, just came out today, which is kind of crazy pants, so I had to rush over here. And do it up, but I'm very excited to be on the air. So Complete Beer Course is kind of a continuation of my first book, Brewed Awakening. That was really a journalism-driven take on what's been happening in craft beer across America. I traveled across country interviewing brewers, bar owners, beer drinkers, to really tell the story of American craft beer. But really, the more I traveled, I kind of realized that, you know, for as much as everyone loves craft beer, we also kind of live in a craft beer bubble where that it's still only 6 to 7% of America. And so there's still a lot of education to be done, even within the craft beer community. I mean, it's not even just getting people introduced to double IPAs, I mean, or just IPAs in general. What ends up happening, I think, is we get so trapped in just uh, the firework beers, like the Imperial Stouts, Barrel Age, the Sours, that there almost becomes a loss on just the basic styles of goss at that point. So I wanted to write a book that was really accessible for everyone. That's awesome. Definitely fireworks. A lot of people are attracted to those. It's the complete. I'm holding it in my hand. It's a really nice book. It's it's a hardcover with a nice binding, and but it's the complete beer course boot camp for beer geeks, from novice to expert in twelve tasting classes. And we got a good panel with us today. Justin Kennedy. He's a writer. He 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 helps us produce beer stations radio, and uh, he just wrote a cool article for First We Feast. Um, what was that called? That was about uh, controversial beers. The 
a brief history of controversial beer. On first we feast. That's right. And that was pretty cool. And then another guy, up and coming, uh, I guess, mead maker, uh, Raphael Lyons from Enlightenment Wines. Last time he brought us a dandelion wine, which was one of the best things I've ever drinking in my life. Wow. And of course, it, you went right through that. And uh, you, what did you bring for us today, Raphael? Uh, I've got a black currant wine. It's uh, hopped. And then there's a elderberry apple mead and uh, a maple wine. So I can only promise you a really lively show tonight with some uh, very deep and uh, talented people. So let's let's start off the conversation. You know, this was a long summer, and we had I had a great time. Let's all just talk about some of the breweries that, that we visited this summer, because that's a big part of, of the growing beer scene is being able to visit breweries and, and tasting them. It's kind of like you know beer tourism, which I started doing. I, I was at in Cape May County last week, and I, I was at Cape May the Cape May Brewery um, with Hudson Rising, this great Hudson Valley adventure. I, I was in uh, in Newburgh Brewing in Newburgh. I was at Keegan's up in uh, Kingston, New York. I met the guys from Sloop Brewing in Poughkeepsie. So that's been pretty pretty cool. And uh, as, as part of your travel for your book, uh, Josh, what are some of the breweries that, that you visited this summer? Oh, gosh. This summer, I spent a fair amount of time up in uh, Maine and New Hampshire. And so I got to check out a lot of Algash, Bunker, Rising Tide, going down to Port Smith to check out Earth Eagles Brewing, and down Hampton Blue Lobster, which is a really So in fun. New Hampshire. I know, in New Hampshire. New Hampshire I mean, scene's coming up. It's really coming up right now. Earth Eagles, they did all the Gruit beers. Uh, Blue Lobster has a vet from uh, Hill Farmstead taking it over, and his pale ales are just bang up delicious. And it's in some weird strip mall, little <laughs> parking lot in Hampton. And uh, we were just in yeah, Cal- Hampton, New Hampshire. It's like an old beach town. Yeah. They had a casino growing up. I used to go there a lot. Ski oh. balls and nice. big, big. It's a de- destination spot. I know. I'm trying to think uh, where else. I was out in California recently, too, in Berkeley. And, uh, gosh, in Truckee, California, too. So I was checking out 5050 Brewing, which does all those really amazing Imperial styles as well. And, Justin, what about you? I went to uh, Allagash. I was up with the festival, festival. In, in Portland, Maine for a while. Uh, I went to Allagash. I was in Michigan for a while. I went to Jolly Pumpkin. I went to uh, Arbor Brewing Company in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then I've been to Peekskill twice this summer, uh, once yesterday and once a few months ago. And one of my favorite breweries in the area by far, I think. You know, I was, I was going to go to Peekskill yesterday, but I couldn't get my family to go with me. They didn't want to enable you, Jimmy? <laughs> yeah, you know. It's, <laughs> somehow beer adventure doesn't always jive with family lifestyles. Yeah, but. yeah. But, you know, so as you research your book, I mean, how much time did you, did you put into this book? Uh, I would say, you know. And it's the complete. Beer the complete course. beer course. Thank yeah, you. I mean, the easy answer is it was about 18 to 20 months, but it really is a culmination of 12 years of writing, research, drinking, studying, and more drinking. And so, and, I mean... And, how, and on the way over, you had a little adventure. So it, it's just the end of Labor Day weekend. You're, you're trying to pick up some beers. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, basically, no one wants to sell you beer today because they're tired of selling beer right now. So the shops I usually go to were all closed down today. So I was rushing around trying to find something that would that would suit the discriminating palate of Jimmy Carbone. So and Justin Kennedy and Justin Kennedy. Lions. <laughs> so we're lucky enough to get this a, a few tough group. A few good things end up a little bit sweaty, but you know. So what's it, he brought this growler? It's like this fancy kind of growler. What what is that? Oh yeah, that's the Hydro Flask growler, and that is a sixty four ounce. Gravel almost looks like a uh, a metal Nalgene bottle, if you know those Nalgene water bottles. Yep. And it's got a wide mouth top on there. And what it does is it's a bit lighter than the glass growler, so you're not going to have to worry so much about um, the weight aspect of it. And it keeps everything really cold in there for a very long time. 
And so I put, I think it was a Bayou Tesh, which is a really great brewery from Louisiana, and that's their uh, beer pale. I think uh, LA thirty one. I want to say. Yeah, I've I've seen that in, in, in a few places in the city. That just came up this year, right? Yeah, the first, they've been around for a little bit. They uh, rolled out to New York City finally earlier this year, and they do great stuff. I mean, their beers are suited for the cage. They want to make beers that are suited to Cajun palate, which means lots of like blackened dishes, lots of good Cajun things. And so it's a really it's a really fun concept because Cajun Cajun culture is all about eating and drinking. Well, it's fun to be drinking out of a growler here. Um, I, I was really had a great time this summer. I mean, I mean, there were so many breweries. That it's almost like in every town could have its own little brewery now. Like in, in Newburgh, it's in Orange County, New York. There's really not too much going on up there. There's some farms and in the, in, in the outlying towns, but um, Newburgh Brewery is like the only thing in that in that area, and they have a great tasting room and, and uh, you know. So it's like I feel like these breweries now now are almost they're also destinations. You know, mm-hmm. like wow, wouldn't I want to plan a whole trip? Even this fall coming up, I mean, I could go up the Hudson. I mean, there's places in Jersey to go. Um, who wants to design a beer tour for you know? Let's say we're based in New York. We, we, we want to hit about four a, or five breweries in a weekend. I think that's a great idea. I think you could hit pretty much every town along the Hudson and have something that's you know pretty good, if not really great, like Peekskill or Newburgh or Sloop. So. Will be really fun to be doing a, uh, a combination uh, bike LIRR tour out there because one of the things my favorite thing used to be riding my bikes out to breweries. So, so like on Long Island, yeah, we yeah. biked all we biked all the way to Blue Point. And which is about 50 miles from Brooklyn to get out there, but then it's right by the train station. So you could make a targeted trip out there. Then if you want to take the train back home, you can. Or you go further down, maybe end up in Greenport Harbor. You go, you know, go. You know, there's a lot of possibilities for making a great weekend out of it. Yeah, that's cool. Can I, can I ask a question about these, these breweries, uh, the ones on the Hudson? Do you think that they – are they serving mostly a local community or are they kind of uh, maybe invisible locally and then more distributed widely? I think each one's different, and that's why it's beautiful. I mean, there's some guys that don't have breweries yet, like Yonkers, that are selling in Westchester and the city. There's other guys like Sloop that are really like Nanos, and they're basically selling at the Beacon Farmer's Market on Sundays, and that's about it. And you get guys like Newburgh that they're, they're selling in the area. They're selling at their tasting room, which is huge, an awesome place, and they're also selling in the city too. So I think each one's totally different. You go up to Keegan's. Keegan's has you know kind of regional distribution, but again – They've got a great tasting room. You mm-hmm. can visit the brewery. They, they do barbecues outside. So each one of these breweries is, is, has their own identity, and I think that's what makes it really interesting. Yeah, I think at this wave in the craft beer revolution, people aren't really opening up with these ideas of you know taking over the country. Well, I mean, I think people are realizing you can make a really solid business if you just cater to your local market. And you know, I think they're doing for the local towns. And so if they end up distributing a bit more outside to kind of spread the word, I mean, it's just kind of gravy on top. As these small breweries, they're going to make most of their money doing, you know, on-premise sales, growler fills, tap room, selling selling beer and a burger. I mean, you're not going to make as much of your money by actually distributing it all around. I mean, so it behooves you to actually create a destination in town itself and then really plant your flag in town and have people rally around it. I tend to think of uh, these local breweries as local sporting teams where everyone really wants to support the local team and craft breweries are becoming the local team in town. Yeah, I agree. I think one thing that sets this wave of like new breweries apart from the first wave was maybe – you know, the fact that people were overreaching the first time around and now they're kind of seeing that they can't, you know, most of these local breweries don't bottle at all. They're just selling, like Josh said, kegs, growlers and mm-hmm. stuff to local bars. So they're really super local and doing great things, I think. 
Josh, let's go back to your book. So again, mm-hmm. it's the complete beer course, right? Yeah, I keep say, you have to get used to saying the name of your book. I have said it <laughs> far too many times. You haven't yet because I still can't remember. It. <laughs> <laughs> but like, so tell us, there's some chapters in there. So. Like an overview of the book. You're covering some history of craft beer movement? Well, you know, I mean, the first book I really think I covered the craft beer movement with Brood Awakening. This book I really wanted to kind of take a step back and take a step forward as far as people's education. So I started with um, – it's almost a reverse journey where we start in the light and go into the dark. By that I mean we start with lagers, pilsners, and you kind of work your way up to um, stouts, whip beers, Abbey-style beers, um, imperial stouts – wild yeast beers. So the idea is to talk about these styles, how they evolve over time, ground them in modern day, and put it wrap it around real-world examples that best exemplify these beers. Then each chapter is also um, has a foundational feature on a brewer that kind of best exemplify these styles. For instance, wild yeast, we'll be talking about Chad Jacobson and Crooked Stave, who's really furthering the art of fermentation. Um, Pilsners and lagers would be victory brewing which has just some of the most beautiful lagers in the country. Um, stouts is Duck Rabbit in North Carolina, which just does killer stouts in a part of the country where you don't think stouts should be popular. But to read a book, you realize that hot weather, when your beer warms up, a stout's still going to be good. A pilsner, a lager that warms up, is not going to be as great in your hand on 95-degree North Carolina day. You know, that's a great point. I've always been yeah. fans of dark beer in summer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that was really the idea for that was take people from – I mean – the unfortunately overly ambitious goal was to give people the tools to walk in any bar and bottle shop and understand everything on offer. I mean, which sounds really ambitious, and I really wanted to give people the tools, the grounding, the idea, and the understanding in a very approachable way. It was almost where I'd be talking to you at the bar, I'd be like, hey, Jimmy, have you ever had a Munich Hellas? And people are like, what's that? And so I tell you about that style, and that was really the approach I wanted to do was your best friend telling you about it in a way that you want to hear more and not shut them up for being really annoying and being a know-it-all. All right. Well, it's, it's a nice-looking book, and it's just coming out in time for things like Christmas. And today. Holidays and today. <laughs> and today. And <laughs> Tuesday, it, September 3rd. And where's your launch party? It's next week, right? Uh, yeah, we're doing a really big launch party over at Brooklyn Brewery next Tuesday, September 10th, which is going to be amazing. Tickets are available on my website, joshuambernstein.com. It's a pretty sweet deal. It is 15 bucks for all-you-can-drink beer and or 30 bucks for all-you-can-drink beer and uh, Rendang beef sliders from our friends at Aria's Malaysian Kitchen and a copy of the book. Nice. And it's $25. So you're getting all-you-can-drink <laughs> and a book. So yeah, we got about 50 tickets left, so it's going pretty quick. Though. All right. Well, hey, uh, we're going to talk more with Josh and Justin and Rafi. I'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. I don't go in for understanding when you are away. Can't use my heart to think away the time. You're listening to Josephine by The Hollows on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Tie your finger right on up to mine. Sweet Josephine, you live in my dream. So you like good beer. Whether you're a craft beer pro or just had your first sip of an IPA, GreatBrewers.com is your number one beer resource on the internet. GreatBrewers.com bridges the gap between the world's great brewers and the consumers who enjoy their products. 
With so much information and misinformation out there, GreatBrewers.com focuses on education and leaves no stone unturned. Take the Great Beer Test on their website and browse through an extensive product catalog. Download their mobile beer cloud app, which includes a GPS beer finder, a beer sommelier, and descriptions for over 5,000 different brews. What are you waiting for? Back up that passion for craft beer with some solid information and education. Visit GreatBrewers.com today. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Joe, what was that last song? It was pretty awesome. That was Josephine by The Hollows, Brooklyn-based band. I liked it. I like that kind of music. I think that's what we should be playing more on the show. What do you guys think? You should uh, tweet us at, at beer underscore sessions. Let us know what kind of music you want to hear on, on the breaks, because that was pretty good. It was from Brooklyn, and, and it, was, it was country. I like that. Hey, um, we've got uh, Josh Bernstein. He's got a new book out. What is it called again, Josh? The Complete Beer Course. I'm going to make you say it. <laughs> Justin Kennedy and Raphael Lyons. And uh, we're here with thanks to our sponsor, GreatBrewers.com. They, they upped this year again. Uh, they are our, our huge uh, sponsor, supporting the network, Heritage Radio Network. And we, and we and you guys are really awesome. And, uh, hey, I just was on the Beer Cloud earlier, and we were trying to figure out where to get some beers for the show. And, um, you know, we, uh, we scored some places. <laughs> oh, we scored, Jimmy. We oh, have yeah. more beer than ever, which... I think this show is often a race to see how many beers we can drink in 45 minutes. I like that attitude. <laughs> and now we've got some meads from, uh, from Raphael. So, Raphael, we've had you on before. Just, just tell us a few things about what you're doing because you're an enigma. You're selling meads through CSA, and yet you are uh, a very talented you know, maker of these beverages. Um, well, I do a series of very small production uh, fruit and Honey wines and uh, maple wines, I guess, is the new, the new thing we have on tap tonight. Uh, and I usually do that for a, kind of a subscription base that purchases the wine up front. Uh, and so they get like a mixed case twice a year. And that's basically what I've been doing. So it's super local. Everything's from New York State. And everything's pretty much pre-sold to a membership list. So the last time you were on, you, you had a dandelion wine, which I thought was one of the most interesting things I've ever tried. Uh, tell us a little bit how you made that. And what goes into it? Because it's—I know it's very limited. Yeah. Well, no, it's gone. I mean, there might be a bit at the Dandelion Wine Shop in uh, Greenpoint, but um, well, you wait. Know, there's I'm, a Dandelion Wine Shop. Yeah, yeah. There <laughs> wow, <laughs> Brooklyn mean, really is very <laughs> niching out these. Well, days. you know, in the old days, that you know, Dandelion was was one of the flavorings they put into uh-huh. beer. You know yeah. that. I know yeah. you know that. I've read a book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because uh, you know basically the secret is you actually have to actually pick a lot of dandelions. That that would be the the, the main uh, the main trick. But all these fruit wines, I mean, they're essentially like making a tea and then you ferment a sugar from something else. And so, if you use honey, it's you know wild honey, it's a little bit more it tastes better. I mean, you just can't cut any corners. It, but to, to, so this walker, so because dandelion wines, is it dandelion flowers or dandelion greens? It's the flowers, yeah, the flowers. But the flowers themselves have a little bit of the stem on it, and the stem has a little bit of this milky liquid in it, and that gives you that sort of bitter, and also gives it the medicinal properties, and also the, um, you know, the stabilizing properties instead of hops, right? So, mm-hmm. you, you know, so you do, do you steep it? What, what do you do to, to bring out the flavors? Um, it's complicated, but uh, the main secret is is that uh, typically you would have had to pick them all at once. And then make the wine, and then you know basically make a tea. But what I'm allowed to do now because of modern technology is I, sh- I can actually freeze the flowers for um, you know three or four months, let the the initial dandelion wine ferment, and then re you know sort of like a dry hop 
hit it hit it at the end also, and that's how you get the double the double flavor. How much? <clears throat> excuse me. How much dandelion does it take to do that, Raphael? It's a lot. Like your hands will be covered in yellow, like <laughs> pigment when you're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's by weight. I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, but I, I, I do want to. I do want to. I kind of. I'm super interested in this book because I feel like you're. Uh, you've seen like all beer, right? Mm-hmm. You've seen all beer, in, let's say at least in the United States and and mostly in Europe, and like as much as one human can. So there's always new stuff coming every day. Because when I when I make the wines that I make, I always imagine sort of this sort of matrix, right? Uh-huh. Like, and I can think in beer. Like I I live across the street from the Spite Devils. So I go there every day. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not a professional like you are, but I, I'm an amateur, let's say. Mm. And I see the beer as this kind of matrix, right? You have this light to dark, you have the more hoppy, less hoppy, mm. and then you've got all these various parameters, mm. right? And it's like a field of activity that you can do well in, right? Mm. You can do a good Pilsner, you can do a good Saison mm. or something like that. And um, one of the reasons that I got into doing meads and fruit wines is that whatever that matrix is, is largely unexplored. Mm-hmm. It's largely like a historical anecdote or like some um, homebrewers are trying it out. So it's like it's empty, right? And did you get that feeling that there were places in the beer that they're like, wow, like like small beers, for example, something that I tried recently. I was like, wow, I didn't mm-hmm. even know this could be a beer. That got really exciting for me. I, I'm kind of curious what the edges of the beer are. I think some of the edges of the beer right now, people are really digging back into – it's interesting because you always have to stand out in this very crowded craft beer marketplace. So that means is, you know – We've gone that route of making, you know, an IPA that's 8, 9, 10, 12 percent, 100 IBUs, 150 IBUs, a million IBUs, and a bigger, better, better, more. I mean, and so I think now we're seeing brewers are trying to dig down and actually embrace historical styles. We've been seeing people going back to beers that were kind of maligned in that sense, like the uh, the lager. The lager for a long time was a four-letter word for brewers, I mean, because they were trying to differentiate themselves from the actual, you know, from Miller Coors Bud, which... There's nothing bad about how those beers are produced, but the flavors tend to hit the widest swath possible. So I think now what we're seeing is people returning to you know classic styles and giving them a slight craft spin. And then also when the other beers are brought tonight, embracing these really the, – the original esoteric German styles of beer like the Goza, the Salty Sour Goza, the, um, the Tart Berliner Weiss, and so on. So And we're finding brewers – I mean – much faster than I ever anticipated. Like, right now we're holding Westbrook Brewing from South Carolina. They have a canned Goza, which, I mean, three years ago, if you wanted to get a Goza in the country, it would have been, like, good luck. You had one option if you could find it in the dusty corner of the imports at the beer store. And now it's just... Or you could get it at Justin Phillips' uh, beer table. Well, beer table closed, but beer table pantry. He always had Goza. He had the Leipzig Goza in that that quirky bottle. It's, like, round with a skinny neck. Mm -hmm. That was probably, like, the only Goza available for a long time. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, and to go back, Raphael, to what we were talking about with mead, I think a lot of people's expectations with mead are poisoned by the fact it's honey is so hard to ferment and that a lot of homebrewers try it. So most people's first experiences with mead is this really terrible, for terrible homebrewed mead. And so people say themselves mead is terrible or they think Renaissance Fair and give me an oversized turkey leg and a glass of mead and that's it. And so breaking it out of these kind of cliches is really tough and making people think, that mead can have beauty, but mead can have beauty. It's just it takes a lot more care than going into your kitchen and you know watering down honey and adding a bunch of adding a yeast strain to it. Although I got to say, I I think beer is so hard. It was it's so hard to make beer that I don't even know how to make it. 
Well, let's, you know I mean? let's like, talk I about try. your meat. I, okay, I want to talk. You tell us. What you, we first tried us on this maple. So okay. you're not just making mead, though. You're making it more like a wine. But I right. know that you have to call it mead well, legally. So anything that has honey in it is going to be called a mead. Um, and that's just a category of wine. You know, so they're all wines, right? Mm-hmm. The, the hard part is, is like what you were talking about. It's the education. It's like getting people to understand that um, that wine is a category of beverages that is not made from grains, it could include grapes, but it doesn't have to, right? So there's all kinds of things that people make all over the world that are, you know, they make it out of anything they can get their hands on, pretty much, and they will eventually learn how to make something amazing mm-hmm. in their region, right? No, that's true. But what, what about you made something, you gave us this maple Right, so, drink. The, so the maple Let's drink... Let's call it a drink. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I mean, I don't know, technically it's a, it's a maple wine, you know, that's probably how the TTB would call it, but, you know, like you said, honey's kind of hard to ferment, Maple's a little bit hard to ferment, but they're not that hard. And so, one of the interesting things is that the in the in New England, that unlike pretty much everywhere else in the world, there's no tradition of Native Americans making alcohol in New England. Mm-hmm. Like unlike everywhere in the world, they usually figure out the natives would have figured out something, mm-hmm. including because they've definitely made maple syrup. And but so you know, I just tried it one day, and I was surprised. It's great. It's great. It's kind of I mean. I don't want to call it a Chardonnay, but it's like it's fruity, it's it's light, it's dry, um, and you taste that maple flavor. And what's cool about it is you you never will ever really get to taste what a maple is until you remove the sugar mm-hmm. from the flavor because the sugar is so powerful. So the fermentation process actually turns the sugar into alcohol, and you get this leftover thing, which is really kind of brilliant, I think. And that's why I like it. Are you making it with maple syrup, or are you making it's it with maple sap? Super. Maple syrup. So I know some chefs that have been working just with maple sap, which isn't mm-hmm. sweet at all. And right. they'll cook down a pig in it or something, and it infuses it with maple. I've been talking to a maple syrup maker, because if I could get into the process... Like, basically, I'll take maple syrup and then water it down to the right mm-hmm. kind of level to make the wine out of If I could hit it at the right moment before they've boiled it back, I'd probably get a little bit more flavor out of it, actually. So I'm, I've been talking to people about that, too. I think sure. I think we hit on what you're talking about the labeling with the TTB. That's a big issue for mead because I think I think it's about around seven percent or so and above it has to be considered wine, mm-hmm. and yep. anything below it can be that. Like Bee Nectar Meadery up in Michigan does a lot of really interesting, amazing projects where they hop mead, they barrel age mead. But I mean, if it's above the certain percentage, it has to be considered wine. And for the average beer drinker, they're kind of a they're turned off from I'll up here. I've turned off from that that wine designation, and so mm-hmm. it, it's something like, oh, I don't want to drink wine. I'm a beer drinker, even though they're applying the same sort of creativity, the same sort of really outside the box thinking that has really exemplified craft brewing over the last decade. And but because it says wine, it's not quite the same no, thing. And, and you're right. And what is this one? This one has a snake on it. Uh, that's a black currant mead. It, does, it actually has very little honey in it, but black currants by themselves wouldn't get to an alcohol level that would be stable. So. If you just fermented black currants, you'd get maybe 8%. So the honey brings the potential alcohol up to 12, and that's kind of more... So that's your, that's your range is 12, I try and hit 13. 12, yeah. I think, but not I, like 15, 16, no, like some other I, I, I don't. I, I think that's just kind of this weird homebrewer's game that people inherited to like try and get a high alcohol. There's just, I mean, it starts taking like, tasting like alcohol after a while. Raphael, who does your labels? They're really pretty labels. Oh, um, I, generally me. You do them. Okay, great. <laughs> but thanks. Uh, you should try this. This is this is a nice thing to kind of clear your palate a little bit. It's kind of fruity and stuff. And where is your production facility? Um, it's upstate New York near New Paltz. Um, it's a f- my family's farm. Okay. So that's why I've been making it in a barn pretty much. When we first met Raphael was when he was just getting licensed and, and he was bringing us down 
uh, different examples of his early fermentations in carboys. Mm-hmm. And um, we appreciate it for just being total natural, you know, fermented product. And, um, you know, you pretty much have only sold it through a CSA. Right. I mean, the restaurants... You're kind of, you've created your kind of your own model that, that I don't know anyone else is doing it the way you're doing it. Well, you know, I'm actually in a transition moment right now. So I'm trying to, I want to have a production facility in Brooklyn. So I'm getting investors and it's like kind of a business step mm-hmm. scaling up. And the CSA is great and I love it because I, I don't have, they trust me, right? So I just make something, they're going to drink it. And that's a really great relationship. It's a very different relationship than trying to market something to people, right? Because then you get to you get to educate them as they go, go along, and there are already people who are like, "I want to try something new every day," you know, and that's really exciting. But it's hard to pull off the rent, you know. If I want new CSA members, like I've got openings right now for the CSA, so I go on the radio. I say, "I got openings," you know, and then maybe people come how, to us. How do they reach you? Uh, my website, enlightenmentwines.com. And what's it's, your CSA terms? How does it work out? Um, you know. Uh, it's pretty mellow, you know, like pretty much they sign up and they'll either get a half share, which is six bottles, or they'll get a full share, which is 12 bottles, and mm-hmm. it's a mixed case. So this year they'll have uh, the black currant wine, they'll have the sparkling apple and cherry mead, and they'll have um, this elderberry and apple, which we have here. I had a question. Talk to some other folks have done some beer CSAs. They've told me you know, that they're a time getting people to actually pick up everything. Have you found that there's any challenges that you know, pick up um, in getting people to do that? Well, it's Manhattan, so yeah. I mean, I do it by, I do it at a different place each time, and I try to make it a really interesting place, uh-huh. so that they're looking forward to coming there. And then um, I also ship, so I've got some people out in California and Portland and stuff like that. So that helps. Yeah, that helps a lot. Well, I just went, my palate, I went from the, the, the meads that, that Raphael made to the Westbrook Goza that you brought, Josh. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am feeling good. <laughs> I mean, this is great. You're right. It, it really captures it. This is like a salty, slightly sour beer. Yeah, a little alcohol. I mean, a great beer you'd want to drink kind of on a hot, sunny day like today. Oh, this is great. You can just buy this somewhere? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, have, have you been to, West, to Westbrook? I have Southern? not been to Westbrook yet. Westbrook really came on the scene in the last couple of years. So I have really, you know, you want to go everywhere, but, you know. I, I was gotta, there about a year ago. It's a really great brewery. Where is it? It's right outside of Charleston, yeah, South Charleston. Carolina. Yep. They've been partnering with the folks from Evil Twin mm-hmm. and Stillwater uh, as well. Stillwater. Yeah. And so there's this great group of all these folks. Are, I think the folks from Evil Twin are brewing beer down there as a way to kind of make it cheaper for the American audience. Because if you brew your beer overseas, you got to pay shipping and right. freight, excise taxes, everything. And it just makes your average six-pack of beer exorbitant. All right. Hey, um, thanks again to our sponsor, GreatBrews.com. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. She fell through the earth. She can't fall so well. This one's called Persephone by The Hollows on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. The thing that 
Cantillon stuff, you know, like. Okay. All right. Hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're here with uh, Josh Bernstein, Justin Kennedy, and Raphael Lines. Okay. These guys are good. They're talking. So we we just we came back in because they're talking about the Westbrook goes za. Right. Goza, yeah. And, I, can, and I, I thought he was talking about a goose, and I'm, I'm like, all right. Well, but I then what'd you say, Robert? You said what? What'd you say about the salt content? Well, I, I mean, I like this beer a lot, and uh, but I was I was comparing it to the these like Belgian lambics, yeah. lambics, right? But it, and people do get confused. I mean, the, the goes is this German style, uh-huh. and goose is is a lambic. But uh-huh. then what were you saying about the salt content? Because let's just go back. So the goza. It has a slight salt. Yeah, a salt finish. like it's almost it's a sour, salty beer. And you classically they're very laser laser tart. But you know you know, there's styles, but style I think is kinda of like a big waistband of your sweatpants, so you can kinda of stretch it out and kinda of do what you want with it. And but I think this is one Is your wife pregnant? What she is <laughs> He's talking about waistbands here. Oh my good Look God. <laughs> she is about seven and a half, almost eight months pregnant. It is it is a lot. So they say you're, you're rushing to get your book out, and you're going to tour the West Coast <laughs> yeah. before your baby's born. Oh, yeah. So basically, yeah. right now, I'm trying to get everything all together for next week's book tour on the West Coast in San Diego, San Fran, Portland, and Seattle to come back so I don't have to be like 3,000-mile flight and not have to do some sort of weird FaceTime uplink on the airplane to watch my baby popping out into the world. So it's a little terrifying. Yeah. No, that's awesome. But you guys, sometimes when we turn off the mics, everybody starts talking. And so no, and I never like, thought about go- – first, you're you so right. I mean, there's so many different styles of beer, but then the, the words can get confusing. It can. And, and, and goes is so unusual. It is. And, you know, it's been and most band- people don't know it. It's bandied about a lot lately. But I think what it, what it does is almost, in a way, you can kind of consider it like almost like a sour Gatorade in that sense, where it's got salt in there, which gives you the electrolytes you need on a hot day to replenish what you've sweated out. But it's also low alcohol enough where the goal is not to drink, to get drunk, but to hydrate. What is the alcohol on, on that beer? Three percent or four? Four. It's like three, yeah. four. And, and and that's funny. Quoting a, a brother in law of mine who's an orthopedic surgeon, he said that actually uh, Gatorade mimics what beer does mm-hmm. because it, it, you know when you've been working out or you're, you're wiped out, you need to provide le- electrolytes to your system, mm-hmm. and uh, it's like Gatorade's like a you know a man made version of beer that's really natural. And uh, I don't know. I would say drink drink beer after your workouts. People used to. <laughs> uh-huh. Why not? <laughs> if or, you're drinking Gatorade, it's like what do you want? Fake sugar or you want like naturally fermented mm-hmm. sugars? You know. That's a whole other conversation, but this this would be a good workout beer that goes up. So, be. so can talk to me about the the acidity in here. Uh-huh. Where does that come from? I don't know specifically their their process on doing it. You could do it a couple of different ways. You could maybe put in a lactic acid, or you could maybe do lactobacillus, which is a souring bacteria which ushers uh, milk into yogurt mm-hmm. and so on. So, I I wish I knew exactly this, but like I said, I picked it up at four fifty two thereabouts. <laughs> so with it's yeast, you know. <laughs> Right, but it's, not, it's, a na- it's like a natural process. That the yeah, it's natural. Souring, it's nothing. Yeah. It's nothing. Something artificial about that. Yeah, I mean, that's a, again something. I mean, in Josh's book, I would definitely the complete beer course by Josh Bernstein. <laughs> Way to go, Jimmy! And it's also on the goodbrewsteel dot com. We we do link to our authors who've been on the show. You can go to goodbrewsteel dot com, check out store, and any author who's been on, you can buy their book. It goes through Amazon. It's all nice. that. Yeah, I mean, I think the goal for that book was to talk about styles like these that we do see bandied about in a big way. You see them on the top list, and it's kind of like, like, what is this? And, you know, a good a good bartender would be able to really tell you exactly what it's all about. But, you know, I think oftentimes tap lists are expanding faster than bartender education. 
in a sense. So oftentimes, like new bars open up, they have 20, 25 taps on there, and you talk to people like, what is this? And there's not always the informed answer you want. So I want to give people the uh, knowledge to know what to order. And then, you know, if the beer tastes funny, to understand it's okay to send something back. So maybe like every it. bar in America should have a copy of your book. <laughs> I yeah. think my publisher would like that. <laughs> my wife so she could not work anymore and just raise her daughter. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, Justin, you, you, you've written some things too. And I have. And I, I was going to say a good place to go back with the Goza and kind of these sour styles, these old styles is um, – an article in the Washington Post last week that Dan Fromson wrote. Um, I don't remember the title of it. I'm sure you can search it, but it's about kind of everyone's kind of sick of IPAs these days, so they're going to go to to the sour, like low alcohol beers. And I think that's kind of a it's a great turning point for the craft beer movement because we're getting away from the seven eight percent IPA and going to the three percent sour beer. Do you think you know? Do you think I'd like to think that, but I know sour is going more popular. But do you actually think people are turning away from IPAs? No, they're not at all. I'm drinking one right now. I know, right? <laughs> I, know, well, I think they want good IPAs, but they want good IPAs. I mean, you look at founders; their all day IPA has gone gangbusters right now. I think they rolled out, and now I think it's maybe their top selling beer right now. It went from bottles to cans, and it's just like I think it's not just they want the IPA flavor, but not just the booze. Yeah, that's true. But you know you do see stuff like this go- yeah. the Westbrook Goza or mm-hmm. the um, the breweries uh, Hop and Roth or whatever what, I had last Hoppenroth, week. Hop and Roth, yeah. yeah. But don't you think? A, what about beer. the like the session? Like I feel like the the American Kolsch is like like when when is it going to get here? You know what I mean? There's because, a few good Kolsches. I think Captain Lawrence makes one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Stouts makes a good American style Kolsch. The American Kolsch is actually the cream ale. Oh, you think? No, no, yeah. it's too soft, right? It is. Well, there's two. Like I think there's. The history of the cream ale is kind of muddled a little bit, but the idea is basically ale brewers were losing ground to lager brewers, so they're trying to find a way to actually you know compete. So they start taking their ale yeast strains, fermenting them at lager temperatures, in almost like an echo of the uh, Kolsch. And so cream ale has become bastardized in the sense that Jenny cream ale is like this right. cheap, right. this cheap. Dirty. Good, like uh, I know Barrier Brewing in, in Long Island is coming out. I think this week we're getting some. Geek Skull has one. I had one yesterday. Yeah, yeah a cream ale. Yeah, so really nice. the cream ale it's a is, style. It's a right. So right. Kolsch is actually an ale. So it's right. Kolsch is kind of a cream ale. That's a good point. Well, cre- yeah, cream ale is just uh, the name turns people off in the same way that I think mead does too. Sometimes yeah, sure. where it's like here's a cream ale and they're like, where's my big cap of cap of right. cream on top? Yep. They expect Guinness. I remember when when Empire first came into the city, they, they that was one of their big beers was was the cream ale. I think uh-huh. it, it was hard for them because people weren't, weren't ready for it, you know. I mean, there's so many different styles of beer. Um, let's taste the last of, of your meads, Raphael, because oh, okay. you brought you brought a few in, and uh-huh. this one also has some color to it. Right, it's, this is like a kind of ruby red uh, looking, uh, and if you go on the website, you can see it. There's pictures of all the wines there, um, but you know, this is uh, this is sort of like my summer late late summer rosé, I guess. So it's and, really and what is this one again? This is going to be apple and elderberry, and there's um. Uh, you know, in a honey. So, There's a little honey in yeah, there. But again, it's very dry. It's unfiltered. And uh, it's designed to be drunk on a terrace. So if you need to bring a terrace with you. Um, <laughs> is that included in the CSA? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe the distribution is on a terrace. Yeah. Uh, I have a terrace. You can come over and sit on my terrace. No, I mean, I, I, I think this this is kind of like if people are like, all right, I'm going to my family's house and I want them to try your wine. And they're kind of, you know, they don't like like weird stuff. And. This is the one, you know, because it's so easy to transition from a kind of classic red. So red, you're, you're, you're a unique person. I know you went to, like, what was it Brown or RISD or something? One yeah. of those Rhode Island schools. Mm-hmm. And um, you're an artist, and we, we know some friends in common, but um, 
You know, do you think of yourself as as an art artisanal producer of these special beverages, or this is just like a hobby for you? No, no, this is my job. You know, I take it really seriously. Um, I do think that I learned a lot, like training as an artist to make alcohol in a kind of business environment. And, and the primary difference is is that um, I think most people, particularly home brewers and brewers in general, and people who make alcohol, they they want to do a really good job. That, that's what they come out at. They were like, I really like this kind of beer. I want to do a really good job of it. I want to make the best version of it I can. But if you're trained as an artist, that kind of process like doesn't go through your head. Mm-hmm. What you're really looking for is like, what are the questions I can ask? What are the spaces that aren't being occupied? What's not here? And I think that that sort of informs my winemaking. You know, I'm not really interested in making anything that already exists and doing it a little bit better and trying to like capture market share. You know, it's just not my process. So what what excites me about the field that I'm in is that I actually feel there's a lot of space. So I can come up with something. Like, no one makes a hopped black currant meat. Okay? Like, no one makes – nobody makes any of the stuff I make, and that's cool. Like, if I was brewing beer, I think I'd have a lot harder time mm-hmm. because I think there's so many brewers making so much good beer, and they've it's, like, amazing. You know, you can get everything pretty much at this point. It becomes an adjective journey. Yeah. And then you have people like uh, what's an adjective journey? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's like you know, like barrelage imperial stout dose of brandomyces, and it's like it's like one thing after the other, and it's a lot of terms that are presented to you, and you're just kind of like, wait, like you need to unfold and think about how every part plays together, what's important here and what's not, and so it takes a it takes a fair amount of understanding. You, you probably you probably taste more beer than than anybody, don't you? No, I mean no, more than me. I, I mean, you know, I don't like saying absolutes. Jimmy, you own a bar. You have access to beer at all turns of the day. I often have to go out to stores and buy my beer. Like you have to yeah, leave your I, house. I usually only him, drink right? beer that I like. like. I don't have to go to just taste samples all the time. And well, I pretty much find it like we're drinking the Peekskill Eastern Standard IPA. I'm a boring drinker. I really like that. I like some of the Westbrook. I'll keep drinking so that. So like, you're like the new dad. You only drinks Budweiser, but for you, it's only Peekskill Eastern Standard IPA. It's like, Sometimes. daddy only drinks Peekskill Eastern Standard. Ugh, I can't believe it. That's, that's, that's pretty good, Josh. <laughs> but going back to the style thing, there's, there's brewers like, uh, I guess, I don't know, Sean Hill and Brian Stillwater, who are doing things, and they kind of don't want to be uh, confined to you know a certain style or saying that their beers are a certain style. So, Josh, what do you think about that? Like in terms of what Raphael was saying about his yeah about I mean, his wines, like yeah, like I was saying, I mean, style is really just I think for the average drinker, style is a courtesy mm-hmm. and style is a starting point, something to understand where you can jump off this big springboard into whatever direction you want. But it doesn't just have to be. Like you need to follow this small like set of instructions and fit within these parameters, otherwise your beer must be called something else. I think, but that's the result of a lot of labeling. I mean, a lot of it's like the yeah, result of the true. legal code, which says no, you have to call something a thing. We, we know right? all that, yeah, but let's. Yeah. I want. I want to take a step. We still want to yeah. go. It's Josh's book here. Right. Let, let's let's, <laughs> let's go that direction. I'm trying to play him off. So you get to try a lot of beers. Yeah, I'm sure. So as a writer, people send you beers a lot. Yeah, unsolicited okay. beers. Yes, and then you get invited to visit a lot of breweries. Yeah, we don't really do that, you know, not as much. I, I'm a very stubborn traveler where I kind of like doing what I want to do, and so we don't really sit there and like, we need to go to this place. It's just kind of um, what fits in, what what piques my interest, and, you know, I'm not going to be, I got a wife that doesn't drink beer right now, and so I'm not going to be the person that sits there and goes like, baby, you have to go here, and I want it to be fun for both of us, and so... I'm not just going to be a, a person that drags everyone everywhere. You know? well, let, let's go. Let's go back to, to Maine. So you were in Maine this summer, uh-huh. 
And just take a little time. Tell us the breweries you visited and some of the features of them so that our listeners can get inspired to go up to Portland, Maine, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I mean, there's Allagash does just classic, beautiful Belgian-inspired beers, and then but they also are really on the vanguard of doing, um, I guess, much spontaneous fermentation with their Cool Ship series of beers. And so they're really worth any journey. I mean, they're they're pretty much at the top of the list for East Coast breweries. But what's the experience like when you actually go to the brewery? Oh, uh, when you go to the brewery itself? I mean, you know, Jimmy, most breweries are pretty boring. There's, I don't know. I don't go anywhere. Of, Allagash <laughs> is kind of in an industrial park. Yeah, um, it's an industrial outside park. Outside of downtown Portland. It's yeah, it's a couple miles outside there. But I think the thing about it is just that... You know, the barrel room is second to none. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, you go You get there. a free tasting. It's, uh, I think, five beers and stuff you can't get. And I think I, mean, I think that's when people go, for, go to places. I mean, it's just like, it's not just about, I mean, the brewing process is pretty elemental. I mean, it's just like these one step leads to the next step leads to the last step. And so when you go there, I mean, you're going there to meet the brewer. You're going there to try the beer. And... You know, you don't really need to be ushered along and shown that here's where the grains go in, here's where that goes in. So I think if you're going to visit a brewery, it's as much for the beer as the process. I mean, and can you also buy rare beers there that they don't sell other places? Occasion- the cool ship you can buy there, but you can't really buy anywhere. So else. you can buy the bottles to go, and, but okay. you can only buy two bottles at a time. So it's kind of uh, you okay. know, occasionally you know, but any any good brewery worth its salt is going to have um, you know special beers you can only buy there. I mean, that's the way you get people coming there and you get people trying stuff. And I mean, you want a special taproom-only beer. You want, then, like these, you, want, you want to go to a brewery and have a unique experience no matter what it is. If it's hanging out with your friends, if it's going there on your honeymoon, or if it's like buying this rare beer, I think what, that's what people go for for brewery visits. I mean, you're seeing things to the source. It echoes the fact that brewing is a blue-collar industry and it's not just this automation. You get to see the passion, creativity, hear the people's stories. I think the stories are as important as the beer itself. And then what? tell us one other brewery that you like to visit in Maine. Another one in Maine. You have Maine. Uh, my friend Creston does great stuff at Bunker Brewing. They have a good relationship with their folks next door at Tandem Coffee. So you can get there and get a malted coffee, a malted iced coffee, which is done with um, malt and then uh, coffee beans. So it's just this great hybrid of coffee and brewing together. Is and that like the Manhattan soda that they sell? No, Manhattan no? soda. Okay. Manhattan well, soda how, how do you incorporate malt and – I don't understand. What, how do you put malt in a drink like that? Uh, you know, you could gr- – I mean – I am not speaking to the process. I'm talking out of my butt right now, but I would estimate that you would probably like maybe you grind it down and you put it in, you put it in hot water or cold water. I don't really know how they do it. I can't tell you, Jimmy. And is is that brewery in Portland? Maybe? Yeah, that's Tandem. It's a coffee shop, which is done from some Brooklyn expats. Then um, Bunker is next door to it, and, and the B- Bunker has this, like a tasting room. Yeah, or tasting regular room. They're, they're really fun too. Well, that's cool. And what about? Raphael, what about you? Any play, do you any meteries you like visiting? Or, uh? No, but I, I went to a cidery recently that was really exciting. Which one? Uh, I went to Slyboro. Okay. Up, upstate. Uh, totally we, worth it. We the trip. love their ciders. We sell yeah. a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of mediocre cider, and that is not a mediocre cider. They do a good job up there. It's really good. So they also have a tasting room? They have the a cidery? beautiful tasting room. They make four ciders. They have a farm. They have a little guest house where you can go in if you're completely wasted because you've been drinking with them all night. And then. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's and actually down the road there's a guy who has a lion, which I saw when I went jogging the next day. Okay, what type of lion? A lion, animal pet lion. Yeah, he had a lion. Like a Mike Tyson lion. Li- yeah, he had a lion. He had a lion. 
hit a lion. I don't know what to say about it, but it was true. I went wow. by and I heard it and I saw it. It was crazy. Well, I know Slybro's up. It's on the border <laughs> of New York and Vermont. Mm-hmm. A lot of weird things happen up yeah, there. Yeah, that's true. It's Including a, there's a lot of farms up there. It's a twilight. It's the uh, Bermuda Triangle of upstate New York. It's very cool. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we're going to wrap up the show. We're going to say a few things that are coming up first. Uh, on that note, Slybro and Enlightenment Wines, Cider Week, it, it's happening in the middle of October. We're going to start telling people about it because we'll be doing a lot of cool things. Uh, Josh's book. Josh, one more time. Just tell us about your book again. <laughs> the complete beer, the complete beer course. You maybe drink too many beers, Jimmy. And if you're in New York next week, go to Broken Brewery on Tuesday. Yeah, if you can get in. Broken Brewery on Tuesday. Yeah, tickets are going, but it's joshuambernstein.com, and every ticket sold goes to pay for my dog's food and my daughter's clothing. All right, an event that we've we've produced the last. This will be the fourth year. It's a Pig Island. PigIsland.com. This year will be actually at the Ikea Waterfront, which is one of the most beautiful waterfronts in the city in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Uh, we host 25 New York City chefs. Uh, we're supporting Added Value Farm and uh, you know, kind of Red Hook uh, rebuilding after Sandy. That's this Saturday, September 7th, pigisland.com. Check out our website always for more information, goodbrewseal.com. And you can buy Josh's book on Josh's site. No, you can buy it on whatever the heck Amazon you want. And at goodbrewseal.com, too. Barnes Noble, Good Beer Seal, anywhere that... Better books are sold across the country. All right. And once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors at greatbrewers.com who helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. Always check us out. Follow our Twitter at beer underscore sessions. Maggie's always doing it. She Twittered probably a lot tonight. And if you have anything to say, again, just send it to at beer underscore sessions and uh, let us know what you're thinking. Thanks to Josh, Raphael, and Justin Kennedy for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers, Jack Ensley, Brie O'Connor, and our engineer, Joe Galarraga. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.